On the 5th of March, 1975, Hugh McDade, known to all by the nickname Boogie, celebrated his 21st birthday. He travelled from his hometown of Remelton, County Donegal, to the nearby town of Milford for a dance, organised by the Letterkenny Regional Technical College, where he was a student. By 3am on the 6th of March, Hugh McDade was dead. This is the story of Boogie's Last Dance. because there was seven children but saying that everybody seemed to be their own person I was two and a half years younger than Q and I could never say his name properly it was always Q I couldn't say I have to really concentrate to say who I was just talking to another sister there recently Fiona and we were just saying we never ever remember an argument in the house over Hugh even though he was different he was flamboyant he was everything probably in those days you didn't want your son to be but there was never an argument about it he he just got on with his life the only time I ever remember an argument in our house over Hugh was the night that he came home he had left a car the the family car and a ditch about 10 miles away And he came home and I'd left a note for my mother not to waken him because he had walked all night home and he wanted to sleep. And I always remember the roar that went out when Mammy read the note to say, don't waken me because I've left the car in a ditch ten miles away. Remelton is an idyllic heritage town situated on the mouth of the River Lennon on the western shores of Loch Swilly. In this small town rich in history, thriving in culture, music and art, Boogie grew up with his six sisters, Jennifer, Eileen, Grace, whose voice we just heard, Dolores, Fiona and Anne-Marie, and his parents, Kathleen and Hugh. Although just as Boogie was best known by his nickname, so too was his father, who was known to all as Tootie. Remelton is also home to McDade's soft drinks, best known for their beloved original creation, Football Special. It was for McDade's that Boogie worked, alongside his father. Boogie's cousin and close friend Dominic also worked at McDade's with them. Dominic remembers how they would spend their time in 1975. Playing pool, playing darts was the big, big thing. Edmund and Donald's pub, there were a wee pool table on it. And you had to put your money up, queuing up, probably 40 or 50 years. And it was mad. It was one pool table? Just one pool table, and and that was the excitement we got, <laughs> playing pool. <laughs> and, of course, uh, music at the weekend. There were always music at the weekends down in that, that pub Edmonds down there. One night in that pub Edmund Donald's, it was after one o'clock, after serving time, and the local Garda came in, and they were still out dancing and jigging about and the sergeant said to Edmund O'Donnell the proprietor of the place he says look it's half one in the morning they're dancing out there and Edmund looked at him and he says you couldn't call that dancing <laughs> the guy just bought it laughing and whacked it left us that, well that was the kind of time so I was quite honest I'm thinking, <laughs> now, you couldn't call that dancing 
Should we get away with Back in the day, on a Sunday, the bars had to close from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. They let them back in. They were an old wine licensed in there, so they used to make a spaghetti ball days. It sounded well exotic. <laughs> so from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we all went down to Lennon Bank for wine, stag and cider and spaghetti ball days. <laughs> they stayed back out again when the pubs opened again at 4. But Boogers always been there too, eh? Pumping out the music as usual. Now, it was just music mad. Just love music. Mad hair strips, fun. Time for me. Name on there, I can help it. You survived. Bottle of Antilla wine. Just red poison, just. It was 50p a bottle. So we got the 50p bottle every Saturday night. So it was any wonder we couldn't dance. Innocent <laughs> <laughs> hmm. times. Well. No mobile phones. We just enjoyed listening to music and wherever you could find it, you got it and that, you know, that was basically what we were at. Mammy would have been very fond of you, there's no doubt about it, even though he, he was an only son, but he, he, she would have been very fond of him. He was good crack and he was good, you know, he, 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 he would have taken good time with Mammy as well. Daddy and Q, they, they possibly were very... Similar characters, but different. To be fair, Daddy Daddy was very witty, and, and Q was very witty. They were quirky. Q was very quirky. Daddy was quirky in his own way and got away with saying things to people that nobody else would get away with saying. And Q probably would have developed the same way in life if he had lived after he was 21. Music was a religion to Boogie. So he began organising concerts and booking bands himself. very much into his music, all Leonard Cohen, you, you name it, he was big into Albatross. I always remember Albatross, full blast on, on, a, on a record, uh, coming from a room where he would have been. He was the first that brought horselips into the county. It was in the Golden Grill, it was a great success. And he became friends with horselips, he became friends with the band members. Perhaps even more so than today, 1975 was a time of tribalism. Rivaling groups of young men from different towns would regularly get into fights at dances, for little reason other than just being from a certain place. In fact, such a rivalry between Remelton and Letterkenny impacted Boogie's fledgling career as a live music promoter when he booked a band night in Letterkenny Cinema. He would have been a Richard Branson of the day. Like he booked the cinema in Letterkenny. For bands. But of course, her eye broke it. <laughs> her eye broke it before the band was on, or middle of the band, and the whole thing was cancelled. Down money right away. <laughs> Remelton and there again, such a place. They would know us, man's going to make money at us. No, he's not, because we'll start a row. So that's what it was, yeah. On the night of the 5th of March, Hugh went out to celebrate his 21st birthday in Milford, but was also planning a party in the family house the following night. Whenever he, he was 21 on the night that he died and he, I was at home waiting, I was actually waiting to go into the bank to work 
and he asked me would I go to Milford with him and I said I had you know I don't think I'll bother uh, it was the night of his birthday it was which was the Thursday and then he we were having a party on the Friday night and that was ironic in its way because the house was full of bacon and things done for his party so that when whenever we had a wake we had no need to get food from anywhere because we had plenty food in the house because his party was on the Friday night and he had died on the Thursday night. Dominic remembers the night well, a night that started out like any other. We were talking about the dance during working hours, the dance down in Mulford. We agreed to meet up for a game of pool, a few games of pool and a few beers and we headed over then, over the street to a friend of his, Thomas Coyle, who had a caravan parked beside his father's house. And there were beers in the caravan, so we had a few in there. We are listening to Carol King, I mean, Tapestry, I think was the name of the tape recorder, cassette, you know. So we had a few beers in there, and crack was good. And we got a lift then down to Milford. A little bit below, before that day was over. Elsewhere in Remelton that night, Tommy Logan was out for a game of pool. Tommy was older than Boogie, but they knew each other very well and also worked together in McDade's bottling store. Well, on that night, I went to the bridge bar. I, uh, not uh, being drinking or anything, I went to play pool and this, uh, this teacher from the regional college came in and he was playing pool as well. So he said then he was going to uh, Mulford to uh, dance for the uh, the college and uh, he asked me if I wanted to go and I didn't particularly want to go but I said I would go and uh, he and I arrived there and down to the, the lounge where where the event was being held and uh, we'd been there maybe quite a bit of time and then this uh, scrimmage took place in the hall. Everybody was buzzing about and uh, I went up to investigate, see what was happening and uh, Boogie was lying on the floor but uh, somebody along with me helped to take him off the floor and we took him out of the hallway into the foyer of the hotel and uh, sat him on a chair and I took the glasses off him. Earlier in the night, tensions were at boiling point in the dance hall. Rival gangs from various localities were at odds and several scuffles had broken out. At one point on the dance floor, Boogie was struck from behind in the face by a single punch that knocked him to the floor. The punch left him with a broken tooth. There were mixed reports over whether or not Boogie was also kicked when on the ground. Tommy helped Boogie to his feet and out of the hall. Outside on the street, Boogie spotted the young man who had struck him in the face moments earlier. The two foolishly went to engage in another fight with each other. Then I thought to myself, I thought, well, might be as well to get, get Boogie out of there. So I left him sitting on the chair. I went into the hall to see could I find some of his buddy boys. When I came back out again, Boogie had gone. At that stage, he was outside. And then there was a calamity going on shouting and roaring and I, I was standing at the front door of the hotel and there were two guards standing on the other side of the road. Then there come this big guy 
and he was up the hill on the street and he was chanting and he had a red and white scarf and he was chanting it had hit above his head and he was he was shouting and shouting and then Boogie ran in ran up to him and he was standing right in front of Boogie and Boogie when Boogie went to hit him the guard came up behind him up behind Boogie and he drew the baton with his right hand and he just hit him hit him on the side of the head and Boogie fell Boogie dropped just dropped to the roadside that was that and he hit him on the right side of the head yeah yeah I remember the the noise and the room above where I, I slept and I come down the stairs and the priest I can remember the priest there and I can remember daddy standing with his hands on the back of the sofa and his legs going from beneath him and I remember his legs buckling and that was the, the word that, that Q had passed away. They carried Hugh's coffin from the key house right up two hills, right up to the church. He was carried uh, in, in, uh, by, by the men, boys, whatever. They all took a turn. And I, like you often see someone carrying a coffin, a stretch past something. But they carried Hugh's coffin the whole way, and it must be half a mile. He was 21 years of age, and he was, you know, he was heavy. So it must have been a real a real hard slog for people, but they all took their turn. And I, I remember walking with Daddy. The whole way up, there was people behind us. The whole town was actually walking. They took you from the key house up to his resting place. Yeah, it was a, it was a scene to behold. It was definitely a scene to behold. The whole community were completely behind us at that stage. He had a favourite scarf and... Um, the, the the scarf was left on the pew beside me at the, at the funeral and as they, they were moving the, the coffin away they looked for the scarf to drape it round the coffin and I wouldn't give it to them and I have that scarf to this day I, I, I just couldn't part with it and they wanted to drape it on his coffin and I wouldn't let it go because that's the scarf that he always wore and I still have that scarf The official cause of death was inhalation of vomit caused by brain swelling brought on by a fracture of the skull. A case was brought before Letterkenny District Court in late November 1975. It was to determine whether three young men involved in the earlier scuffles, including the one who punched Boogie on the dance floor, were guilty of occasioning actual bodily harm. The injury which caused Boogie's death was on the right side of his head. There was a large oval bruise on his right temple and just below it, a depressed fracture of the skull. There was a lesser injury on the left side of his skull, but no fracture. The injury that led to his death was on the right-hand side. State pathologist at the time, Dr John Harbison, said he did not believe that the fatal injury could have been caused by a punch from a bare fist. It was suggested that maybe Boogie had been kicked when on the ground in the hall. This idea of being kicked was never agreed upon for definite, but it fed into a particular narrative. It was implied that perhaps the baton was not responsible for the fracture, Maybe it was a blow he received earlier in the night. 
people apparently reported that Boogie appeared badly dazed directly after the altercation in the hall itself, implying that perhaps he had suffered a head trauma there in the hall. However, Tommy has a potential explanation for Boogie appearing this way at that time. When he, when he came out of the hotel, he was grand, you know. Like, there were a lot of people saying he was badly drowsed and he looked very, very dozed and all that. But you see, I said that was because he, he hadn't his glasses on and he's, he had awfully heavy lens glasses, you know. They were so, so strong. Very, very strong glasses he wore. He would look out at it anyway. If he hadn't them on, he'd look awful like. You know, he, was, he wasn't the cutest boy anyway, but he would have looked worse without the glasses, really. The three men were cleared of occasioning actual bodily harm, but received three months suspended sentences for common assault. The judge presiding over the case, Justice Johnson, would apparently dismiss evidence from people who said they had drink taken on the night, which was practically everyone at the dance. Tommy, however, had never touched alcohol at that point in his life. He was completely sober that night. He made two statements to the Gardaí at the time. He still has copies of both, and his story has never changed. He saw the Garda hitting Boogie on the right side of the skull before he dropped unconscious. There were four witnesses in total who claimed to have seen the baton strike on the right side. However, the Garda claimed that he had in fact struck Boogie with the baton on the left side of the skull, a side where Boogie had a superficial wound, not a fracture. It turned out that another four claimed to have seen the baton strike on the left side, corroborating the Garda story. The judge called this a complete conflict of evidence. Notably, Owen McGonagall, solicitor for two of the three defendants, acknowledged that the court should be impressed by the clear picture that Tommy gave on the use of the baton. McGonagall said that it was significant that one of the four who corroborated the Garda story was a defendant in the assault case a defendant who enjoyed a positive character reference from the Guardian court. Speaking about another of the witnesses who backed the Garda's story, McGonagall said there must be some doubt over his account and that it seemed improbable. I would add that another of those four witnesses who agreed with the Garda's version was in fact the other Garda on duty that night. Justice Johnson had this to say in closing. There is no doubt that liquor had an effect on what happened that night. I think we will be much better off if at a function like this, which young people attend, no alcohol was served. Johnson's only comment on the Garda baton was to say that the Garda, and I quote, had acted in a proper and efficient manner. It was like you're hitting a rotten piece of timber, just cracked. The baton hitting the skull, you know. That, That noise, and I can still hear that noise. I just walked away and left him lying in the heap on the road. And everybody said, you know, see them, you know, get him an ambulance or whatever. Never bothered. They never done nothing. He just walked away and left him lying in the heap. It was terrible. Like, it was absolutely awful. When he done that and he fell, he would, he then became responsible for that person. And he, he failed that responsibility, you know. That has to be questioned. Uh, the case happened, the case finished. Uh, they asked us all to accept, I think, maybe a hundred euro each because he had passed away. I, I'm not sure what kind of a civil or whatever scheme it was, but I refused to sign that form because if I signed that form, it meant that I could never take a case against 
the state over what had happened to Hugh and I never did. Uh, and I don't, I would say at this stage, it doesn't really matter anyway, but I felt so sore and so, uh, it was so personal to me because Q was so close to me that I wasn't willing to take a hundred euro for my brother. Holy mother of God. And I remember my mother asking me, well, why don't you take it and get prayer, get masses said for him? That was their mentality, get masses said for him. Hugh didn't need masses. He didn't need masses. We just needed Hugh back. Anyway. Marvel music. Completely marvel music. And he used to go up to Dublin on the bus. And he bought a big ghetto blaster. And he played the 1812 overture with all the bombs going off at the end of it, you know. And I think it might have been put off the bus for making too much noise. Oh, definitely mad on the music. One of the stories, too, about Hugh was that he went off to London. I think it might have been the year after he did his leaving. I just can't... I don't think it, he was too old at the time. But anyway, he, he was coming back from London and uh, everybody... We, we all packed into the car. Well, as many of us that could possibly get into the car packed in. And we went into Derry to collect him from the train. He had flown into Belfast, I think, and then he took the train down from Belfast to Derry. And anyway, we were stand waiting on Hugh to come and this man came with a big hat on him and a big long cloak and just long hair and just completely a hippie style and everybody just looked and nobody said anything at all. We just all packed into the car and went home. But it was when you look back, he was just that was just Hugh. He was different, but everybody accepted him for what he was. He was just different. You think now, what would he have been like? What was what would he have had a family? Would he what his family would be like? Would they be close to you? Where would he have lived? You know, there's a whole lot of questions in your head about him. Obviously, aren't able to be answered. But you often think about what age would he be now? Would he have got any sense? <laughs> Things like that. Anyway, he lived a short life. He packed it in, and I loved him as my big brother. I, I really did. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Hugh Boogie McDade, his parents, Kathleen and Tootie, and his sister, Jennifer. This was the story of Boogie's last dance.
Boogie's Last Dance was produced and presented by me, Owen Glacken, and is a School of Media production for TU Dublin.